Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 187, and if I appear to be slightly more diminutive in stature today, it's because I'm sitting down on a very comfortable stool here. Not because I need to, but because I feel like it. So, Father, we thank you for another opportunity to study your word. We pray that you'll bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. How Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. Beginning with Genesis 14, 20 and verse, the second part of the verse. So we'll call it Genesis 14, 20 B. This is the climactic declarative sentence in the very small episode that the writer exegetes in order to show the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over that of Aaron. And Genesis 14:20b simply says, and he gave him a tenth of everything. He, the first he, is, refers to Abraham. And he, Abraham, gave him second hymn is Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. <clears throat> it's the ultimate declarative sentence in the brief episode starring Abraham and Melchizedek that the Hebrews author capitalizes on because it's on this detail of their meeting that the Holy Spirit emphasizes. It's this detail of their meeting that the Holy Spirit accentuates in order to glorify Jesus. What does the Holy Spirit do? He shows us things to come. He leads us into all the truth. He glorifies Jesus, John 16, 13 to 14. That's what Hebrews is, the Holy Spirit glorifying Jesus. And so it is this detail of the meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek, the paying of a tithe to Melchizedek by Abraham that the Holy Spirit accentuates. We've seen that already in a message that we preach called or taught called the tithes, the thing. Hebrews 7, I want to read the first 10 verses to give us once again the sense of the text here and with a slight commentary addition to it. Now about this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to God Most High, who met with Abraham and blessed him as a return from the defeat of the kings, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. Please notice that, because he is referring back to this Genesis 14, 20, B. So in verse 2, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. First, the interpretation of his name, Melchizedek's name, is king of righteousness. We went over that. Then he is also king of Salem. We spoke to that, which means king of peace. We spoke to that. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither having beginning of days nor end of life, but made like, or as we would translate it, made a prefiguration of the Son of God, he in a figurative sense, remains a priest perpetually. 
Now observe how great this one Melchizedek is to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. I'm reading right directly, verse 4. Observe how great this one is, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils of war. This time he doesn't say a tenth of all. He calls it a tenth of the spoils of the war. There was a war between the desert kings. Abraham and his 318 trained home-bred warriors took down Coder Legomenor and all of the kings who took the hostages from Sodom and took the cavalry down from Sodom and took it hostage. So observe how great this one Melchizedek is to whom Abraham the patriarch, so he's greater than a patriarch, gave a tent to the spoils of war. Indeed, the sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the Torah to collect a tithe from the people. We read that in the last increment from Numbers 18 and 1 Chronicles 31. That is, from their brothers, even though these also have come out of Abraham's loins. But one who did not descend from this priestly lineage, that is, Levi, through Levi, one who did not descend from this priestly lineage, received tithes from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So far we have three references to this tithe, which is the ultimate sentence in the little episode in Genesis 14, 18 to 20. We have, first of all, 7-2, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. 7-4, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Thirdly, in verse 6, but the one who did not send from this priestly lineage received tithes from Abraham. Third reference to the tithe here. And verse 7, now beyond all dispute in this case, it's obvious, in other words, in this case it's obvious that the inferior Abraham, though great and though a patriarch, is blessed by the superior. The superior even to the patriarch, is Melchizedek. Melchizedek as a prefiguration of Jesus, the Son of God. So again, let's, let's read this in verse 7. Now beyond all dispute, in this case, the inferior in status is blessed by the superior. Verse 8, here is the fourth reference to the tithe. In the one case, speaking of Levi and sons, men who die, Title of last message, men who die receive tithes. But in the other case, that's Melchizedek as a prefiguration of Jesus, the Son of God, it is testified that he lives. One might even say, fifth reference to the tithe here, that through Abraham, Levi, who received tithes, that is later in history, paid tithes. Through Abraham, Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. 
because he was still in his forefather's loins when Melchizedek met him. That's how Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek before Levi was even a twinkle in his father's eye. So, the tithe is thematic. It's of great importance in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. The tithe paid by Abraham and Levi in Abraham to Melchizedek is the thing. It's the important thing in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. You know, the thing. It's the thing, the tithe. So the tithe's important here. Obviously, it's going toward Levi, who represents the Levitical priests, pays a tithe to Melchizedek, who prefigures a greater archpriest, thus illustrating the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus over the priesthood of Levi. So the tithe is thematic in Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. It juts out several times, five times in these two paragraphs. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9. The tithe is the thing. Now I'm going to do a little side trip here called an excursus on tithing and other things. Maybe an excursus on tithing and sacraments. Today, tithing is made much of in Christian fundraising efforts, for example. To many preachers, the tithe is the thing to preach. They preach on it, preach on it a lot. They make it more significant than it should be. In fact, tithing is not commanded of the church that's Christ's body. The body of Christ, the church, does not have a command to tithe. Giving is a gift. It's a spiritual gift, according to Second, according to First. Corinthians 12, giving is actually a gift. The motivation to give is not tied to a tithe. God's more interested in the heart. Give me your heart, my son. We present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. We commit our souls to him as to a faithful creator. We entrust our spirit to him. O oh God of faithfulness. The motivation to give is not tied to a tithe. A person is to give what they determine to give in their own heart, says 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. The tithe is not a big deal in the New Testament. Jesus even rebuked the overtly pious in the days of his flesh, saying of them that they were meticulous to tithe. He said, in fact, said it this way, you give a tenth of mint and rue and garden herbs 
and neglect justice and the love of God. Luke 11, 42 and Matthew 23, 23 says, you neglect faithfulness and mercy. Jesus didn't advocate at that time the neglect of the tithe, but he put more, much more weight on the doing of justice and the love of God. Now with the death of Jesus, even the secondary significance of the tithe disappeared. Along with the observance of holy days and festivals, which were only shadows of the reality and fulfillment that came with Jesus and the Christ event. Here's my excursus. It will appear in print in italic font. Much is made of things that the Bible doesn't make much of. And too often, little is made of things that mean an awful lot to God. Now what I'm about to say may be a touch controversial, but I think too much is made of baptism as a ritual and as a sacrament. <clears throat> Just very recently, I was pleased to read that a certain patristic theologian wrote that faith was a gift. And indeed, faith is a gift. But then I was let down when I read that the same theologian believed that this gift is, quote, conferred at baptism. Now again, I believe faith is a gift, and I believe salvation is a gift. I believe righteousness is a gift. I don't believe that we believe to be saved. I believe we're saved and then given faith. We're given faith. So I believe faith is a gift, and it indeed is a gift. In fact, though, in much of my reading of theologians, modern and ancient and medieval, much is made of baptism, water baptism. Too much, I think. In other circles, too much is made of the Eucharist. That's what we call the communion. Now, now listen, by saying these things, I don't wish to downplay these sacraments, as they're called. Maybe we could even say, like Jesus did, the Eucharist as a practice in the church ought not to be neglected. Don't neglect it. In fact, Jesus himself said, do this in remembrance of me in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, 24. And as Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Eucharist, in my view, is something that should be done from time to time and not neglected until the Lord comes. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. But even then, the apostle places a strong accent on the right disposition as we partake of those elements. 
on the need to the, for the discernment of the Lord's body. In other words, what are you doing when you do the Eucharist? What are you doing? You don't do it mindlessly. To do it mindlessly is worse than not doing it. Self-judgment is required. Due consideration and thoughtfulness for others. Demanded. Otherwise, one merely toasts his own condemnation. Not condemnation in hell, but he toasts his own being in the wrong. When Paul said Peter stood condemned at Antioch, he didn't say Peter needs to go to hell. He just said Peter stood there in the wrong. He was obviously in the wrong. And if we're not giving consideration to others in the communion, and in their case they came in overfed and overdrunk and denied any consideration to others, then Paul said when you partake of the communion, you're just toasting your own being in the wrong. Not only that, there was severe discipline connected with people that partook of the communion unworthily, involving illness, fatigue, and even premature death. Read, a bit, read it yourself in 1 Corinthians 11, 29-32. I'm not, I'm not playing here. Still again, when some assume that the <clears throat> element of the Eucharist are transmuted into the actual body and blood of Jesus and that only a duly ordained priest can consecrate the host so that this transmutation called transubstantiation occurs and that only those who are recognized members of a certain denomination and who have passed through the sacrament of penance may partake of the body and blood of Jesus. If that's the case, then too much has been made of the Eucharist. In fact, something is made of the Eucharist that it is not, in my humble opinion. Something of priests that they are not, in my humble opinion, and something of the church that it is not. The baptism that is of supreme importance is not water baptism, but the baptism of the Spirit, whereby a person is baptized into Christ through a real identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. And nowhere does the scripture, nowhere in the scripture does it intimate that faith is a gift given at baptism. As if God says, okay, now that you've dunked yourself in water and come up, here's a gift of faith. I recall receiving the gift of faith from God while being nowhere near a body of water. 
nowhere near a baptismal font. As too much is made of the tithe and too little of God's universal mercy and saving justice and God's unrestricted love, so too much is made of sacraments and not enough of the capital R reality that they were intended to connote. I want to say that again. As too much is made of the tithe and too little of God's universal mercy, Romans 11.32, and saving justice. Martin Luther King says that the arc of justice is long, but it always comes back to justice. And I, uh, that's sort of what he said. I'm, I would say that the arc of justice is long and it tends toward the saving justice that saves all of humankind. But people don't want to accentuate that today. They want to accentuate other things, like things that people do So too little is made of God's universal saving mercy and saving justice and the unrestricted love of God. And too much is made of sacraments and not enough of the reality that they were intended to connote. I'd rather die <clears throat> knowing the saving reality of Jesus without ever having been baptized in water than to die having been baptized, but never having come to really know him. Not enough is made of what may also be defined as a sacrament. If a sacrament is a visible means of grace or a tangible means of grace, then this should be a sacrament called the proclamation of the word of God. So, not enough is made of what may also be defined as a sacrament. That being the proclamation of the word of God, the exposition <clears throat> of the inspired scripture under the guidance and illumination of the Holy Spirit. Surely much should be made of this. But unfortunately, church services are often given over to entertainment as if every service involves a rehearsal for American Idol or the voice. The message of the preacher is part of it all, but often not the centerpiece. But how are we going to know the weightier and the more significant things like the faithfulness, the mercy, the love, and the justice of God? And the arc of his justice which bends toward the restoration of all things. How are we going to know all that? How are we going to see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? And to see him in his all-saving significance. How are we going to be perfected in love without the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery? He that keeps his word. In him, in her, the love of God is perfected, brought to its plenary manifestation. It's by the Spirit and the Word, the Word and the Spirit. 
What if God chose to disperse us for an indefinite time? Just to stress this point. What is significant is his word. His inspired word expounded with power and clarity and accuracy to the edification of the body of Christ in love and to the augmentation of the body in stature and in numbers. When you set your foot into the house of God, be more ready to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And as Psalm 119, 130 says, which is in the Septuagint more revealing, because it used the word napios there, as it's found in Hebrews 513, Psalm 118, 130 says, the explaining of your word gives light and imparts insight to the spiritually immature, the napios, napios. So when the homilist or the PT urges his readers to assemble together, and he does in Hebrews 10.25, it's for the purpose of encouragement. The impartation of insight and incentive through the explication of the word. Now that's a sacrament. It's a visible form of grace, a transmission of grace and of life and a cause for growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the honor both now and forever. If you say you miss being in church, you have to ask yourself why. And you could say, well, I miss my brothers, my sisters. I miss my friends. I miss those who are like-minded with me and sitting next to them and rubbing shoulders and embracing and conversing in the hall afterwards, and that's all good. That's, I do too. But if the solely important reason is the word of God, then we shouldn't be missing that. Now it is surely a good and pleasant thing for the brethren to dwell together in unity. There's really nothing like it. It's surely a wonderful thing to see each other face to face, to embrace, to converse, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together. And this will no doubt be restored to us. But the word's the thing wherein we catch a glimpse of our great king. The word's the thing wherein we catch a glimpse of our great king. In our little passage in Hebrews 7, the tithe was emphasized not as something Christians need to do, but as something Abraham did on a single, unrepeatable occasion toward Melchizedek. And God ordained this action and allowed it to be permanently memorialized in the inspired word of God as a pointer to his son, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Levi and sons are men who die, who nevertheless receive tithes from their brothers. 
Melchizedek received the tithe from Abraham, who is the progenitor of both the sons of Levi and their brothers from other tribes. In the first instance, the sons of Levi, men who die, receive tithes. In the second instance, one who is simply said to live, he lives, received a tithe from Abraham, the progenitor of Levi, and of all the other scribes of Israel. It's been suggested, and I want to close with this part of it, and I'm done with the excursus, incidentally, but it's been suggested by more than one commentator that in the next two verses, the author was being so-called playful or making an attempt at humor. And maybe there is that there, but there's something far more serious in Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. Let me read it. One might even say that through Abraham, Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes because he was still in his forefather's loins when Abraham met him. It does strike a little bit of a funny bone here to think of that, think that way. In one way, it does put forth a humorous image, but is it pure free, purely playful? Is it only a kind of exaggerated bit of humor? Perhaps not. On a much larger scale, Paul deployed the same kind of argument in Romans. According to Romans 3.12, when Adam sinned, all of them, that is, all the sons of Adam, without exception, have turned aside. Well, there was one exception. When Adam sinned, all of humanity, with the exception of one Jesus Christ, turned aside. At the same time and together they have become worthless, says Romans 3.12, quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. There is not one who does right by acting benevolently, not a single one. Romans 3.12. So as Levi and Abraham could be said to have tithed to Melchizedek, so it could be said that all of humanity sinned with the single notable exception of Jesus, whose birth did not involve a human father. Merry Christmas. Consequently, all are constituted as sinners in Adam. Not much difference in the mode of argument than, a, than the argument that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek while still in the loins of Adam, or Abraham, rather. And so the fact that all are constituted as sinners in Adam calls for the coming forth of a new Adam, the last Adam. That new Adam is Jesus Christ. In the old Adam, all sinned, being all of us in the loins of Adam, we could say. In the new Adam, all are made righteous. Through the sinful act of the first Adam, all were constituted as sinners. That's Romans 5, 18 and 19. It's even said that when Christ died, all died. 
So through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, all are constituted as righteous. Again, it's even said that when Christ died, all died. So in that sense, we were all in the loins of Christ and died when he died. Consequently, as Levi was in Abraham, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, so all the human race was in Christ when Christ became obedient to the universally saving will of God, even to death, the death of the cross. So I was crucified with Christ. Like Levi was in the loins of Abraham and paid a tithe to Melchizedek, so I was in the loins of Christ, as it were, when Christ died. I died when Christ died. So did you. In fact, when Christ died, all died. Consequently, as Levi was in Abraham, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, so all the human race was in Christ when Christ became obedient to the universally saving will of God, even to the death of the cross. I'll say it again. So I was crucified with Christ. <clears throat> and now I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God. And the same is true for you, and the same will be experientially true for all human beings. For in Christ all will be made alive. All human beings were in Christ when Christ died, and so all will live with him in resurrection. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. For this reason, I would take Hebrews 7, 9 to 10 as a pretty serious mode of argument for the superiority of Melchizedek and thus for the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over the Levitical priesthood, of the superiority of Jesus as archpriest over Aaron, of Jesus' self-offering as the lamb without blemish being infinitely superior as he offered himself through the eternal spirit to God, an offering infinitely superior to all the sacrifices offered under the old regime of the Levitical priests who received their appointment by a law that has become weak and bankrupt. And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at the things that are more important. May we always major on what is of supreme importance to you and minor on those things that just don't mean quite as much. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.